Ecclesiastes chapter 7, a new chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, I had grand ambitions. I'm like, oh, you know, there's a lot here that talks. And um, I think we'll get through verse 1 and uh, part of verse 2. We'll at least get a taste of it. But um, Ecclesiastes 7.1, there's a lot to ponder here. So Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. Uh, I guess my first thought when I read that verse is I, I titled it, Debbie Downer is Back. You know, kind of in that way. We kind of had a little optimism, uh, some, because we're kind of more in the teaching half of Ecclesiastes. As he's gone through his pursuits and what he's looked into and what he's investigated, and now he's kind of given us some of the life lessons and bringing it around like a teacher would. And, and he is the teacher. He is the pastor in this, the preacher. And so, um, but here he throws this. It's, it's kind of... Uh, an odd verse that have a lot of people scratching their heads about it. Uh, he takes an obvious truth, you know, a good name is better than ointment. You know, well, we can all get along by that. And then he links it to death is better than birth. And it's kind of like, how do you do that? You know, how do those two go together? Uh, the first half kind of makes sense, you know, and, and uh, a good name matters. That's true. Reputation matters, or at least it used to. It should. It still does, whether they say it does. And I think a reputation that is guarded and protected is something that we should bring back. It should be in vogue. It should never go out of style. Um, family name should mean something, should stand for something. I was raised in a long ago time when there was shame in the world, where you could be embarrassed because of something you did. You would be embarrassed by a sin. You'd be embarrassed by uh, disobeying your parents, by, by not obeying them, by not being a good citizen. You know, we were... It was, it was strove for to be a good citizen, to be a productive citizen, to be one who was not here taking and, 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 and doing these things, but to be one who was productive and good and honest and, and, and you know, had some sense of community pride and, and, and a spirit and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, I guess a pride of America too, who we are and what we do in that way. There was a sense of right and wrong and we would stand for right. You know, that, that was who we were, what we're supposed to be doing. And if you did wrong, you were ashamed and you were embarrassed by it. The family could be embarrassed by it, embarrassed for you. Now it seems like shameful things are celebrated. Shameful things are, are put on the forefront and, and embraced and put on a TV show and made a spectacle of and how embarrassing can you be and how awful and how, what taboo things do you do that you are now just telling everyone in the world it should be something in the closet and hidden and shameful and put away, but now people put it and make a TV show and make a reality series of it and everybody embraces it. Given TV time, given credence, matter of fact, given importance over even the good standards of things and celebrated as being so. If anything, you, you, they tell it to shock others and that gives them empowerment. I can shock you with how outside I am in this way to try to have control and, and that push, person should be ashamed. Uh, my family's name, the reputation of my parents, the standing of our family and our community, Trafalgar, not a large community, but a community where people knew your name and knew your family, knew who you were linked to, was a powerful shield for me. It helped me as a teenager. It was an anchor and a shield to hide behind. My family had a reputation. I wanted to honor my parents. I did not want to bring shame on my parents, and I appreciate that my parents took the time for a dense boy and tell them that. What you do reflects on us. And I'm like, I'm glad they told it to me straight like that because I might not have made that correlation. You know, it's like, um, 
yesterday we went to a, a funeral service or a celebration of life for my aunt and uncle, and, um, and there were people there I didn't know because it was from my aunt's side and their family. I never thought about her having family besides us because I'm still like an eight-year-old kid, you know, thinking about it. I'm like, I guess it makes sense. I guess she had brothers and sisters and mom and a dad. But I never thought anything of that. She was my aunt, you know, in that way. And so I don't always make those correlations, so I'm glad mom and dad knew me enough to say, Brian, what you do reflects on us, and they're going to think about who we are and what kind of parents we are in our name. You'll bring shame on us. That was stronger to me than shame on me. I didn't want to bring shame on my parents, and so that was a, that was a great help for me. When I was young, dumb, and foolish, and curious, our family name stopped me from doing dumb, foolish, childish, stupid things because I didn't want to bring shame on them. I didn't want to get in trouble at school because my parents knew teachers. They would talk to teachers. You know, there was a, uh, there was a reputation among them, you know, that who we were and how I was to be reflected. So I wanted to show respect to the teacher. I wanted to show respect to others. I wanted to have respect given back to me because of the family name in that way. There is a, there's a safety net within that to be able to say a name in that way and, and who they are. I wanted to show that who we really were, who were we said we were. You know, I didn't want to be, oh, you guys make this tout and, and, and then you perform this way. Uh, no, there's times I failed. But the disappointment I felt in myself when I did was that I feared that I tainted my family's name, that I tainted my name, and that it would stay with me, and then that would stop me from doing the things that I would want to do, or I wouldn't have the trust that I had before. And that would then bring me to correction faster because I had a shame about it, because I had a sense of right and wrong that I had done wrong. So then I had a sensitivity to, I need to be corrected. I need to correct this behavior in my life. I need not do that again. I need to learn from my mistake. And then I had a sense of repentance. I wanted to tell them I was sorry. I needed to apologize whoever I had offended in that way. And that shame was a tool that God used in my life to help mold me and make me and to keep me teachable, to keep me sensitive to what was going on. It was a teacher in my life. You know, it was a good alarm to have uh, built up in my life to keep my conscience on guard. I don't want to bring shame. I don't want to be shameful. I don't want to do shameful things. I don't want to do silly things. Well, yeah, silly things sometimes. You know, but, but, you know, but, but, but this way. But today they, they run to pride. They run to arrogance. Uh, the world wants to accept sin. Things that were in the shadows and illegal are in the light today. Uh, there was, um, you know, drugs are legalized that shouldn't be. And there's things that are out there that are seen as normal. And all. It's just not right. They make it okay. And by making it okay and saying, well, it's legal, are damning millions of people to hell. It does not help anybody in those things. It damns them to hell because you remove a tool of shame that God has there to help steer someone's life to avoid evil and to do what is right and to know what is right. And so we remove that tool from them, leaving us thus, you know, it's hard to talk to them. It's hard to have that. It's hard to bring some around to saying, I need to be broken and contrite and I need to come humbly before my Lord because we've removed the tool from them. We've taken away shame. If you love your kids, teach them right from wrong. Teach them good from evil. Instill in them right from wrong. Instill in them who you are, what you do, what you expect of them. Don't just say, well, I'll let them find their way. No, we are to teach a child, train a child in the way he should go. We're to teach them what is acceptable, what our family does, what is expected of our family. I'm glad that I had that. We put that in our kids. I would tell my boys, you guard your mother. You guard your sister. You will guard your spouse in that way. You know, just teach them that. You are the one. I am not here. I, I am trusting in you. And, and laying that responsibility on them at a young age, 
age, even as, you know, that, that, that molded them to who they are. She said it made them all want to go out and get in a dangerous situation and protect everybody. <laughs> you, know, you make them rescue heroes in that way. But, but it's, it's there. It's to teach them that. You know, <clears throat> I would tell them when we were in the store how we were watching and, and, and everything else. You'll walk on the outside of the street, etiquette things that we used to do to instill in them a good name for our family you know, and to pass it down along that way. To set a standard. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. Uh, we don't do that. Our church, we, our, our family, we go to church on Sunday. We, we would tell them that. You know, that's what we did. It was never a question. It's Sunday. What are we going to do? Here's what we do. It's Wednesday night, 6.30. No, we didn't do sports. We didn't put them in. Boys would love to play football. I'd love to have them in football. And we could have put them in Indian Creek, you know, because of the homeschooling and all that stuff. We could have done that. <clears throat> but they would have missed on we, we didn't, you know, because it was vital to us. We wanted the character to show them this is what we do. It's a commitment we made as a family. See, my family name prepared me, <clears throat> and I tried to instill it in my kids, for when salvation was ready, that I was prepared. And then when I was in God's family, when I repented and, and, and trusted Christ as my Savior, I didn't want to bring shame on his name. I didn't want to bring shame on his family. And that was just a, a right segue to go to. It's like with my family, we had a reputation. God's family, it's a bigger reputation. I can even remember our pastor telling us sometime, if, like, if you're wearing a church shirt or if you had a license plate on your car or a sticker, what are people thinking when you're parked here or going there or doing that? And it made me conscientious of where I went and what I did and what I was thinking of. And I'm glad for that. So my family training prepared me for God's family and for salvation. Because when I saw God's law, I saw his rules for his family, and I saw that I had violated them, <clears throat> I had a sensitive heart to it. I had a sense of shame. Don't lie. I lie. You know, don't steal. Don't lust. I, I've, I've done those things. You know, don't covet. Don't dishonor your parents. Don't, you know, you put God first. I haven't put God first to remember his Sabbath day and don't hate and all these things that it just showed me I had violated the standard that he had that I was not in his family, that I couldn't say I was a child of God by a default setting. I saw that I was not because I did not behave like one of his children. His children, you know, this was the standard and I didn't have that. That showed me my sinfulness. So I was ashamed. I was humble. I didn't have a pride about it, like, oh, I'm just going to show him. I didn't. I was broken by it. And it broke me, and that rebellion was gone. I didn't have rebellion and arrogance to it. I came to him with a broken and a contrite heart, saying, Father, forgive me uh, for what I have done. I saw me as God saw me, a sinner. And I asked for forgiveness, and he did, and he saved me. And I didn't want to bring disrespect to his name. I don't want to bring disrespect to his reputation. And so those two, it's a tool as we teach your family standards to your young ones so that it's a tool that then helps us when their children come around so that they can then be, <clears throat> helps teach them about the family name when they come before God and they confront him in that way about being in God's family and they compare these things. It's a tool that works in favor in that way. It says here that it's better than ointment. A good name is better than precious, precious ointment. Um, that's like an oil to them. That's, that's what they would use as, as an ointment, uh, a medicinal healing. And uh, essential oils are back. You know, they're pretty popular, and uh, they work. Uh, I can tell you we can put on something sleepy, and it'll work. It'll make me sleepy. You can put on something. Uh, there's certain things I put on for certain things that, that, that they've worked. And so and it's there, and they used it. And these precious ointments were the ones that really worked. But he says, you know, a better a name, a good name is better than those precious ointments. It's like, that's kind of a weird sentence. So I thought and thought and thought, and then I thought, how can I put that in today's context? How does that make sense to us? And uh, I thought of it. It's a different phrase, but it's basically the same. Ben Franklin said it, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
That's what he's saying. If you use good name like you're supposed to, it is better than ointment, better than going and running to the doctor and having to fix things. If you can avoid all that trouble by a good name using that shield against you, it is better than running and saying, well, I've got good ointment, and, you know, and then going and getting in trouble and getting hurt, saying, well, at least I can get fixed, or I've got insurance. You know, and so you go out and do something stupid. It is better than that. It's like uh, your family name, you know, uh, it, it helps guard and protect you. God's family name. You know, those things have expectations on them that if you want to live by that standard, it protects you, you know, from doing those wrong things. It keeps you from evil, from um, begging forgiveness, uh, from saying you're sorry. It is better, you know, well, we have a song that we teach the kids that says obedience. You know, it's based on the, it's based on the Bible verse, obedience is better than sacrifice. You know, it's better to obey than to go and say I'm sorry. You know, that's, this is the same thing. And the song we teach them is O-B-E. D-I-E-N-C-E, spelled it right, wrote it down. Um, <laughs> obedience is the very best thing to show that you believe. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Enjoy, you will receive. It's good to obey. It's good to follow what God has told you. It's good to follow his instructions. Obedience is a helper. Obedience is a shield, it is a guard, it is a protector, it is a good name that is better than having to run to a doctor, better than ointment, better than medicine, better than sacrifice uh, to ask for forgiveness. It is better. Uh, and so a song is there to help instill it in them. The Bible verse to help instill it in us. And Solomon says here, and he's considered all these things, a good name is like that. It's better than going and having to get medicine uh, by a good name guards and protects you. Sol- Solomon knew about this good name. Think about his name. Not just Solomon. Think about his heritage. Who is his dad? David, right? David. T- turn me to... Proverbs 4, just to the left a little bit there, Proverbs 4, we get a little peek that I hadn't seen before, but because of this in Ecclesiastes, it made me see it in a different light. Proverbs 4, this is Solomon thinking back to his youth, and as he thinks back to his youth, he is thinking about the instructions that he has gotten from his father David. And he writes these down so that his son will have them and so that you and I will have them. Dads, what do you do for a family standard? What do you set up for your family? What is the expectation of your family? What do you want to instill in your son and in your children? Here's a good place to start, Proverbs 4. Here's a good outline for who our family is and what our family stands for. Here's a good basis you know, to, to build a life upon. So David is a young boy. Or David is young, but David is there and Solomon is the young boy. David, David's the dad. Let me get him right. <laughs> so David, and think about who David is. Think, think, think about this. You have to kind of put yourself in the context, you know, and, and Solomon would know who his dad is. You know, it's like, he's not just Joe, average citizen. Uh, David is the king of Israel. He sees people give him honor and respect. He hears people talk about his name and who he is, the exploit that he has done. He knows his reputation. His reputation has gone out. Even God has a, a, a something for David, right? We go through all of 1 and 2 Kings. He compares everyone to David. Are they like my servant David? Are they not like my servant David? David is like the apple of my eye. It's like he knows that he has approval. He has a reputation to live up to. And he knows that. David, the fighter of lions. That'd be a cool story. You know, fighting lions, fighting bears. David, the defeater of giants. You know, the leader of armies in this way, to have all this, the warrior king is his father. To have that closeness with him and to have David, this king, this warrior, this giant killer, come take you on his knee and sitting on his throne and saying, son, I want to give you some instruction. 
you would remember that encounter. Solomon does. And so, listen, pretend you're Solomon. We're sitting on David's knee, and he has given us this, this, this instruction here. So verse 4, verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. I like that he shares it with us. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. He's going to tell us straight. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. And he taught me also, and said unto me, Let not thine heart retain mine word, or let thine heart retain thine words, and keep my commandments and live. So he's telling this is important. This is life. Listen to what I'm telling you. I'm telling you how to live. I'm telling you what I'm expecting of you. And so David is looking Solomon in the eye as a young boy and telling him, Son, remember this. Verse 5. Get wisdom. I wonder why when Solomon was given the opportunity as king to ask for anything, he asked for wisdom. Because his father David said, If you can, you get wisdom. So here. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. He says, You listen. You get wisdom here, learn by my example, learn from things around you, get understanding, take the wisdom and the knowledge and apply it to your life. You know, so it's more than just book smart, know how to use it, know how to apply it. He's telling him you know, to, to be wise, be smart, learn. Verse 6, forsake her not, speaking of wisdom, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give thee nine head and an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to you. And Solomon in his heyday was known for all that. Verse 10. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. When thou goest, thy steps shall not be straightened. And when thou runnest, thou shalt not stumble. Take fast hold of instruction and let her, not, or let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. He's saying, stay good, stay on the path, stay with wisdom, stay with what is good and honest and straight and decent. And then he tells him what to avoid here, verse uh, 14. Neither go into the path of the wicked, or, nor not, uh, or go not in uh, the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass by it. Or pass not by it. He didn't want you going by it. Turn from it and pass away. If you see evil, if you see wicked, don't even go by and do the rubberneck and look at a car accident. Like, what was that? You know, driving on by. He says, you see it, turn around, go the other way. Don't entertain it. Entertain it. Don't, don't, he says, just avoid it. You know, turn away from it. Run from it. Don't, don't even let it entertain your thoughts. Verse 16. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief. And their sleep is taken away, unless they may cause some, uh, some to fall. Uh, these men are out for destruction. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is of the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness, and they know not what they, uh, at what they stumble. One is a direct path. It's a clean path. It's an ordered path. It is a purpose path. It is marching with, you know, like, this is who we are. This is who I am. This is what we do. The other one is a randomness that struggles and runs and, and falls, and it brings destruction and shame. He's saying, avoid that one. Verse 20, my son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence. That's the most prized thing we have is our heart. 
We are to keep our heart. The Bible tells us to guard our heart. We're to protect our heart. We're to shield it. We're not to let things in that ought not to be there. That's why we're not to covet. That's why we're not to lust. That's why we're not to be angry and hate because it might lead to murder. We're to guard our heart. We're to guard our mind. We're to guard our thoughts. And he says here, you protect it. We're to keep it. We'll find that Daniel does that. It says that he guarded his heart, that he kept it. He's like, I don't want to commit this sin. I want to keep myself sensitive and pure towards the Lord. And so he he does that. And so it's a common theme throughout those who are faithful to the Lord. They keep and they guard their heart. Here he tells them to keep thy heart with all diligence, verse 23, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. Even guard your speech, guard your tongue, watch what you say. Verse 25, let thine eyes look right on. And let, not thine eyelids, and let thine eyelids look uh, straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Don't just run willy-nilly. Think about what you're going. Where is this going to lead? What's this going to do to me? What's the outcome of this? You'll be thoughtful in what you're doing. A thoughtful life, not just like a case or all, or all. We'll see what today brings. He's like, no, you have a purpose in how you're living. You have a plan. You know what you're doing. You ponder your path. Is this good for me? Is this good for my family? Is this what we ought to be doing? Is this what I ought to be saying? Is this what we ought to be going to do? All this stuff. He says, and your way will be established. You'll be like an anchor in there. Verse 27, turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. He says, again, stay on the path. Don't give up. Don't flirt with disaster. Don't run to destruction in that way. And so uh, he's saying there, this is instruction. You'll follow it, a good name, and a name to stay what is right and avoid evil. And so he tells them the rules for life, the rules for the family. That's good instruction to have. And, and Solomon is considering that. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes. And he says that good name is better than ointment. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Those are all the same thing. So the first part's good and practical and positive. You know, a good name is better than ointment, better than precious ointment. That's good. That's practical. It's positive. That's good. Nothing about that statement prepares us for the second part. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. It seems like, well, where where did this come from? (laughs) He's on a big positive way, giving us good advice. And then he tells us this. It's under the sun, and that's where he's been thinking, and that's where he's been working. You know, that not thinking about eternity and not thinking about God. There's no way that's right. There's no way that death is better than life. Birth is potential. Birth, you know, you have hope. You have a whole future in front of you. You have life and living and all the good and joys and, and things that come with life. Death is the end of everything living and it stops and there's nothing. Why would he say this? Well, I guess if you're Debbie Downer, Solomon, that's how I think of him here. I guess if your life is full of bitterness and disappointment, that's the things he's been seeing about wrong that is in your life, injustice that happens to you, uh, struggles that you have to face, you know, when things go wrong and things don't, and you're maltreated and you're mistreated, all these different things, well, at least at death, all those stop. No one can pick on you anymore. No one can tax you anymore. No one can rob from you anymore. No one can call you names anymore. Nobody can do all this. So at least at death, all those things stop. So you can kind of see him saying that it's over. But as we will see... I think we have to take this in context of all of this. That death is a tool, just like shame is. Just like a good name is a shield. Tool, uh, death is a tool that teaches us. To guide us in our choices. To point us to do what is right. To point us towards God. To draw us towards Him. We'll expand on it more next week, but I want to get a little taste of verse 2. 
because it helps inform what he's talking about here in verse 1. Verse 2 says, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go in the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Uh, death makes you think. You know, when you stand and you face death at a funeral, that's what he's talking about there in verse 2, you know, that's the end. And you ask yourself, were they ready? And hopefully you ask yourself, am I ready? There's accountability. If they're standing before God, what's it going to be like the day I stand before God? Am I prepared? Were they prepared? You know, so you kind of usually ask the questions about them, but it comes back like, you know, I'm rubber, your glue bounces off you, me, sticks to you. Or, you know, so it's like that. You know, so you're thinking about them, but it comes back around to you, and all of a sudden you're like, am I ready? Am I prepared? What if I died? What if that was me? You, know, you think about all these things. <clears throat> and every time when I look into the casket, I always think, where are they? That's where they lived. They're not there now. Where are they? Are they in heaven or are they in hell? You know, where would I be? Would I be in heaven? Would I be in hell? You know, you think those things, even, it's a good time for me to, as Paul says, to examine ourselves daily to make sure that we're in the faith. Well, I know that I repented of my sins. I trusted Christ as my Savior. Jesus Christ says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I go through all that and I have confidence in my salvation. Well, I know where I'd be because what Christ has said and I can stand on God's word. I look at the casket and I'm like, they're dead. I can die. People die. You know, it seems like when I was younger, I thought, I'm invincible. I don't think I'm invincible anymore. I know the fragility of life. I know I will die one day. See, a funeral makes you think. That's why he says it's better. And it makes you think about things that you normally avoid. You don't want to think about these long, deep questions. I've had conversations with people. I'm like, have you ever thought of these things? You know, what happens when you die? Where do you go when you die? Where do you end up when you're dying? I can think of one in particular. says, well, I turn up the radio and I try not to think about it. I try to avoid those topics. I try to do something different. Man, that's shutting off a tool that God has there for you. Death makes you think about these things. Just like a good name protects you from making bad decisions. Death is our enemy, but God can use the enemy for his purpose. He can use all things for his purpose, right? So scare men straight. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. And so you can use death in that way. To put a fear of God in you, we say, right? I, I, I don't want to, I'm fearful of that. I don't want to die. I, want, I don't want to die. And to stop you from doing things, stupid things. I might die, you know, so you stops you from doing stupid things. It is a good tool. Death is a good tool that keeps, especially men, who do, young boys, from doing stupid things when you know that you might die, right? Because you know the last words of many of a fool, right? The last words of many of a fool. Hey, y'all, watch this. You know, that, 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 that's usually the last words of a lot of people do a lot of stupid things. I used to always think, dad, dad would tell me, like, that might hurt you or that might be this way. And I'd be like, well, who would do that and how would that work? Then America's Funniest Video came out. I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> that's how you get hurt, and that's what do that. And now there's Fail Army. And I watch that, and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of stupid people doing a lot of stupid things, and a lot of people don't think about things. There's a lot of people who, like, snub their nose at life and do a lot of dumb things just to be on YouTube. I'm like, oh, there's just a, a reproach to life almost. But death is um, something there that stops you. It, it is a shield. Uh, that, that when you look at it, I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I consider death, I don't want to do that. I don't want to die. I'm not going to ride on the hood of a car and stand up while we're going down the road. Or I'm going to do all this. I'm going to lay down in the middle of the road. I remember somebody, let's all lay in the middle of the road. No, that's stupid. A car ran over me. It's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And so just like a good name does, it is a tool that God can use for us. A good name helps you make good choices. Death, help, death helps you make good choices and hopefully brings you to salvation. Yeah, because we consider death, we'll know that Jesus rescues us from death. That he paid the price for us, that he gave us his life. And that he gives us his good name if we repent and trust in him. 
But then again, if we go outside the under the sun thinking, and we begin to think about eternity, and we think about God in mind, and we consider what he's saying here, and we have repented and we have trusted Jesus Christ as our salvation, the good name uh, that we've been given to uh, us you know, by Jesus Christ that we're to live by, to guide us in our steps, to follow his steps, to leave steps for those who come behind us, to live a life that is obedience, to live a life that is pleasing, to live a life that is joyful and honoring, and steps that honor him and honor life and honor those around us by telling them what is good, decent, and right and what the Bible says. At the end of a Christian's life of obedience, we can be like Paul in Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 and verse 23, Paul doesn't fear death. He says this, Philippians, uh, Philippians 1, 23, For I am at a strait betwixt the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He's like, I want to live. He goes, but I also want to be with Christ. And the way that I get to Christ is if I die. And he's like, so I'm a twixt between the two. Do I, I want to live and I want to live for Christ, but I also want to be with Christ. And, and death is what takes me there. See, death isn't feared when you're a Christian. Death isn't feared by Christians, especially obedient Christians, because especially if we're serving the Lord while we're doing it. Why would he walk into a town where he knows that they were going to stone him or chances are they're going to try to kill him? Because he's like, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? A good name is a name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's better than all the sweetest ointments, Charles Spurgeon said. It's true. The ancient Christian fathers called uh, the day when martyrs suffered and died their birthdays because that they truly began to live at that day. Death for the Christian is the end of dying. Dying for Christians is done forever. We face it no more. It is something that we forget. It is erased and there will be no more crying because we no longer face death. If you're lost... Once you die, you face the second death, the Bible tells us. There's a second judgment where it's going to feel like you've died all over again and you spend eternity separated from God. That is your eternal sentence. That is horrible. In life, we struggle. In life, we wrestle. But death is the end of our conflict. We no longer have to war with sin. We don't have to war between our flesh. We don't have to war. It is over. It is, it is a release. We are set free. It is like being born again. It is like our birthday. We have a future and we have a rest and we have a victory. For a Christian, now, Philippians 1 verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. The death of a saint is better. It's better than his birth because it's their birth into everlasting life where they live forever, where they'll be with Jesus forever, with God forever, with family forever, and never fear and never taste, taste death again. It's all because they honored God's name and because they had a right fear and respect for death and they prepared for death that they can go into this and we can say that, ah, yes, the death of a saint was better than his life in that way, that we can rejoice and know that we're not saying goodbye. It's until we meet again. So, yeah, you could be with Solomon in that way in verse 1. And we're going to see uh, of chapter 7, and we'll see through the next, uh, next week, the next few verses there, all kind of grow on this, the idea of death and what kind of a teacher death is, and we will look at that. And so, yeah, he's not so much Debbie Downer in verse 1 after all. He's telling us the things that are right. A good name is better than precious ointment. 
You'll do right and let that be your shield. And death, better the day of the death than the day of one's birth, if you live it right. It's not a tragedy. Uh, it is a home going. Thank you for being here. Let's close in a word of prayer.